Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Mind on Mental Health podcast. My name is Andy Dean. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and my guest today is Kyle Bonner, who is a licensed clinical social worker as well as a licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor. Kyle is the diversity and inclusion specialist at Penn Medicine Princeton Health, as well as a therapist in private practice in the central New Jersey area. Today, Kyle and I discuss trauma in the gay community and different roadblocks that sometimes prevent them from getting effective treatment. So I hope you guys enjoy the podcast and find it helpful. Kyle Bonner, thank you so much for being here with me today. Hey, Andy. Thanks for having me. Of course. I think the first thing I usually like to do with people, Kyle, is just have them tell the audience a little bit about themselves and why they're sort of a good person to be talking about this topic. So can you just tell me what you do for the agency and what you're going to be talking about today and why you're a good person to talk about it? Absolutely. Uh, So my name is Kyle Bonner. I am the specialist of diversity, equity, and inclusion for Penn Medicine Princeton Health. In addition to that, I'm also a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical drug and alcohol counselor. I began my career at Princeton House, actually, Andy, if you you recall. I recall. Um, I remember uh, running groups with you. Yes, very true. <laughs> our, our young adult days, yes. very, uh, adolescent days. Adolescent days. Um, so the topic I'm going to be covering today is is something that's very near and dear to my heart as it's, you know, it's personal to me. And um, I think it's a, a topic that's that's very under discussed and and should be discussed for providers as it as they they practice and you know consider integrating trauma work with LGBTQ individuals. Mm-hmm. Is this something that you specialize in in your private practice, Kyle? I do. So I primarily see um, gay men who have experienced trauma are experiencing um, traumatic life events currently are trying to work through some things because of uh, a traumatic event that has happened and maybe precluding them from participating in day-to-day tasks or building a life worth living, things of that nature. I also see a, a large amount of um, LGBTQ youth struggling with you know, life transitions, um, bullying at school. Mm-hmm. That's great. And obviously, I think this is a really important topic to talk about. And I have to be honest with you, when you first mentioned this to me as a topic to talk about on the podcast. I don't know why, but I had never really considered, you know, I think about working with the LGBT population from, you know, in terms of issues that they're struggling with. There's like that parenting component that you talk about, the bullying component that you talk about. Certainly there's, um, you know, discrimination and, but I had never really considered it from a trauma lens. Um mm. But then it it struck me as really funny that I had never thought about it before. So can you just maybe talk a little bit about why it's important to talk about trauma with this population specifically? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for the purpose of this scenario, I'll use um, gay men in, in, in general. Okay. Um, So think about the perspective of an individual living their life just straight out of the gate, living their life in secrecy, mm-hmm. you know, so realizing that there's a difference, understanding that there's a difference. And then at a point hearing there's a difference, hearing different language to that, that identifies you, um, slurs, 
that are used to to um, identify other individuals as less than. Mm-hmm. And so right out of the gate, gay men have that innate trauma of being themselves. That's a really good point. And I, I think even me as a clinician, sometimes I still have this tendency to think of still when I hear the word trauma, I have a tendency to think in like these big, like dramatic, right? you know, uh, terms. It's a big word. It's a big word. Right. So it's like, you know, you saw, you know, combat in, in a war zone or something, or you were in a terrible car accident. And that kind of thinking is honestly a disservice because those little T's or those traumas that are a little bit like less dramatic, you kind of think mm-hmm. of them like, like you said, like being called a name or, or uh, like a micro trauma, like a micro trauma. Sure. Those can have just as much of an effect on someone, especially if they are consistent. You know, if there are mm-hmm. uh, many things like that, that happen during the course of one's life. Um, and even if not, like all any example of that happening could have a profound effect on someone. Yeah, a thousand percent, you know, and, and as you put it, you know, those those little T's or those micro traumas can often be the most insidious because they're the ones that you live with every single day. So mm. it's essentially, you know, if we take a young gay gay boy um, in in grade school, you know, that's essentially a childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. So he's developing this this childhood trauma along with navigating the world, fitting into you know friend groups, developing through puberty, all while navigating this internal insidious mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and now I'm feeling guilty over here, thinking <laughs> that um, guilt <laughs> a little because. I don't mean to uh, like minimize the impact that being called something like that could have. Um, like I'm, I'm calling it a little T, but it doesn't even necessarily need to be. I, that could be like a defining traumatic event in someone's life. I guess what all I'm saying is that still in my mind at times, I get caught up in thinking in sort of these more huge dramatic turns when I'm thinking about trauma, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it really can be something as simple as being called a derogatory term or, or whatever the case may be. And as with any trauma, you know, my concern always becomes the behaviors that that follow. Totally. And I think in, in, in gay men specifically, sometimes those behaviors can manifest in extremely ineffective ways. Mm-hmm. So can you maybe give some examples of that? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, especially in LGBTQ youth, we see significantly higher rates of suicidal ideation, Mm -hmm. self-injurious behaviors, homelessness. Uh, I think the most recent report that 40% of all homeless youth identify somewhere within the LGBTQ plus community. Often because of that, there's higher rates of um, sex work leading Mm -hmm. to higher rates of HIV and STDs, victimizations. In adulthood, we see higher rates of um, substance use, anxiety, and depression. And even if, even in that, you know, think about where the historic safe spaces have been for gay men or queer individuals. It's bars and clubs, right? And what's being served there. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. this mix of like anxiety fueled with, well, this is my only place to be. 
Mm-hmm. What's going to calm my anxiety, my social anxiety to to feel comfortable? Right. I think I think the point that I'm getting to is that there's there's factors that are different, vastly different than the heterosexual community. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a trauma in and of itself that one of the only places a a, a gay individual or a queer individual can feel feel comfortable is a bar. Mm-hmm. You know. Whereas heterosexual folks get that privilege day to day. Right. They can walk through the streets and hold hands and kiss and and be affectionate without the fear of judgment or shame. Mm-hmm. Not saying that there's not queer folks or gay men or individuals that don't do that. Of course there are. However, there's always that question, that wonder of who's watching, what's the reaction going to be? Right. So you're essentially always at this elevated state, re-traumatizing yourself. No, that's that's an excellent point. Hey, listen, you're speaking to the most privileged person in the world right now. I'm a straight white, (laughs) um, I'm a straight white male, right? Um, So I don't have to consider, you know, what are people thinking when I'm walking down the street with my arm around my wife or uh, when we're being affectionate in public or um, any of those things. But uh, a lot of times with oppressed groups, they do have to take all these things into consideration because, look, let's be honest, there there can be a real fear there for their safety sometimes. I mean, for their emotional mm-hmm. safety as well as their physical safety, right? Um, yeah. So just... And the shame that comes from that. Mm-hmm. The shame that comes from the shame that comes from a life of exclusion, where an individual can see that couple walking down the street, holding hands, kissing, be affect, be affectionate, mm-hmm. possibly have the same thing, but not have the comfort level to do so because of the shame, because of you know lack of conversations or lack of visibility. I can't recall myself growing up seeing a ton of positive representation on media or in public view of gay men. Yeah, same. Gay men have historically been made out to be a joke on movies and, and television and mm-hmm. and in real life. It's the, the punchline. And nobody wants to be the punchline. So you you fly under the radar. Yeah. It's either the punchline or like that's their only defining characteristic, right? Yes. Like, that's of course. A, they're not like a a well rounded person in, in these movies or T V shows. It's just like that's the thing. It's like the gay guy. Yeah, you're either the gay BFF, super flamboyant, or you know, just gay. Right. Absolutely. There's not really, there's not really any much depth to, to that. Yeah. Now this is a total sidebar, but have you seen the movie Bros? I did see the movie Bros. What I did, did see the movie what Bros. Did... <laughs> I watched it with my uh, my fiance what did... a, few, uh, a few weeks ago. What did you think? You know, I liked it. It's you know, it's cheesy. It's it's hokey. It's it it is what it is. But it's a it's a rom com. Yeah. You know how how uh, how how much depth is there in You've Got Mail or right, uh, right, Sleepless right. in Seattle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But would you say that that was a more positive representation of gay males? I would. I would. I, I think that um, I think that they did a really good job sprinkling in some cultural references that people may have not known about or um, nice. Yeah, it was it was it was certainly nice to see. I got to tell you though, even myself and and uh, my partner can attest to this. We I was uncomfortable watching it at, at times. Really? Yeah, 
there were points where where I was uncomfortable watching it of just like I think I think worrying what the audience I I we watched it at home but like mm. worrying about like what other audience members might might think how so for me I think it was the visibility I'm not mm. used to it mm-hmm. I'm not used to having a movie where the entire cast is queer mm-hmm. or the leading man is a really funny, quirky, goofy gay man like myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't see that. So it's it's new. And right. as with anything, you know, changes changes uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But um it was uh it was an experience. But you know, as I was reflecting on it, I was like, wow, why was that? Why did I feel uncomfortable? Yeah. By that? Yeah, yeah. But hey, I mean that makes total sense, right? Like you said, I mean it's just it's new and as we just said like a minute or two ago neither one of us can really remember seeing anything like that when we were growing up right um no i think will and grace was like the first one yeah 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 i'm wondering if there's a difference between how trauma looks or presents itself in gay men as opposed to straight men or straight women like does it look differently with gay men yeah, so I think it manifests in a couple of different ways. I think that the behaviors that come from the traumatic experience are different. I think that the the isolation that often comes within the queer and gay community can add to that. Mm. Again, like the higher rates of substance use and the availability of mm-hmm. that. And also like the, the, the lack of resources, mm-hmm. you know, so any individual not not any individual but most folks can find a trauma program or providers that are specific to them um, and get a general understanding of of who they are mm-hmm. for gay men you know there could be other layers to it there could be a sexual trauma that they may be uncomfortable experiencing there could be familial trauma they're not comfortable sharing there could be domestic violence mm-hmm. and individuals may preclude themselves from calling the police or getting help because they fear that they're not going to get proper service. Mm-hmm. It's not that it looks or manifests different. It's just that it, it the, the steps to restore and the steps to get better are vastly different because there's much, much different roadblocks. For example, like, like you and I are both in a men's group and they suggest, well, you know, go, um, a great, a great activity, a great sober activity is to go join a, uh, a softball team, mm-hmm. right? Well, you're like, oh, wow, yeah, that's a great idea. I never, I never thought of that before. But like for me, well, you know, maybe I have a history of being bullied on team sports. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm nervous. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm nervous that, I, you know, if I, if I joined, they're going to make fun of me or I'm mm-hmm. not going to be. A field. So like there's a lot more tact and providing different skills. What are some other examples of roadblocks that this population might sort of come into contact with? Well, I think group in general, therapy in general, you know, finding a compassionate provider. Let's, let's take group, I mentioned group first. So let's take a group setting for, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, if I'm in a men's trauma group, how do I know what the, the tolerance or the acceptance level is in that group? Right. How am I going to comfortably share that? I'm an abusive. I'm in an abusive relationship with my partner who is a male. Mm-hmm. How may I feel comfortable processing sexual traumas with a therapist who isn't comfortable hearing some of mm. the 
how can I go to a physician without being asked irrelevant questions for care? Some suggestions of like coping skills. Um, you know, if I were to, to take you and I, if you and I are in a group together, you know, suggestion might be, oh, go participate in a group sport like softball or a kickball team. Mm-hmm. Whereas me, if I'm a gay man, maybe I've experienced bullying as part of a, a group sport or mm. might feel shame associated with that. I think shame is a big thing that precludes a lot of gay men from participating and feeling part of um, the larger community. Mm-hmm. So I think what I'm hearing you say, and this is what I was trying to get at before, is that you're really talking about two different kinds of roadblocks, right? There's like, there's the concrete roadblocks to treatment itself, whether that's like knowing that you have a provider who's empathetic to uh, your situation, uh, that uh, is understanding, that you know you can actually trust to um, talk about things and, and they feel comfortable hearing it. And then along with that, it's like if you're in group therapy, how comfortable are the other group members hearing you talk about it and how comfortable are you bringing this stuff up with these other group members uh right so there's there's sort of that piece like the very specific treatment piece and then there's the work so uh, again if i'm trying to better myself or if i'm trying to learn a new coping skill and somebody maybe um a straight a straight man could feel more comfortable joining a softball team. Whereas with a gay man, there might be sort of all these other considerations or if, you know, I look, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I guess sort of where my mind is going with this too, is like, we'll often talk about like people, places and things, right? So uh, maybe if I'm in uh, therapy for substance use treatment, I have other safe spaces I can go to that don't involve substances. So like maybe I can go to a 12 step meeting um, or maybe I can go to my church or something uh, to help me structure my time. Well, for gay men that might not, those two places might not be options or they might not feel like good options because you're not comfortable going there. Mm -hmm. And you know, those spaces and those options exist 12 step recovery meetings for LGBTQ folks exist. Mm-hmm. They're just not as abundant. Right. You know, so to, you have to travel to a community in which there's acceptance of that or mm-hmm. or find places where you, you can get that. So the, the burden and the hurdle becomes uh, larger to, to get compassionate care. Right. And I think that's the important piece for providers is that not, not to say that, that these folks are not seeking treatment. They are. You know, they're they're in need of treatment. They're they're hoping and, and looking for uh, change. However, these are these are some considerations that may preclude them. Okay, thanks so much for tuning into the podcast. We just wanted to take a minute to give some resources in addition to Kyle's private practice. One of the easiest things Kyle and I feel that people can do to find an LGBT friendly provider is go on psychologytoday.com, type in your zip code, and then filter the results by LGBT+. That should give you a list of therapists and counselors in your area that specialize in LGBT issues. Another resource people can check out is glma.org, and Kyle would also recommend the book The Velvet Rage by Alan Downs. So I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast, and we'll talk to you next week.